You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. I am happy to welcome back again to the podcast the distinctive voice of Brian Zond, pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. Brian has written openly about his entire spiritual journey in a number of books, including Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, Postcards from Babylon, Water to Wine, A Farewell to Mars, The Unvarnished Jesus, Beauty Will Save the World, and his latest book, When Everything's on Fire. You can find out more about Brian at brianzon.com. Welcome again, Brian, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you, David. Good to be with you. Well, Brian, in your latest book, When Everything's on Fire, you end with a supremely optimistic poem entitled Laughing Now. The poem begins like this. Something is happening to me. Something is bubbling in me, like I'm about to laugh, like I just heard the best news. Unexpected, yet a secret I've always known, I believe. Like never before I believe in Jesus. I believe what the Gospels tell, what the creeds confess. But it's more than that. How can I explain? I believe in the greatest wonder of all. The Word became flesh so God could join us. I believe Jesus is the all in all, all things, summed up in Him. I believe in the restoration of all things. Then later in the poem, referring to Julian of Norwich, we hear from you. I believe the mystic's 13th revelation of divine love. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And then the poem ends like this. I'm laughing now because I believe that in the end love wins. Love believes all things and hopes all things. What would love believe about God? Believe that. What would love hope for humanity? Hope that. And laugh now, if just for a little bit. So the last written word that we have from you, Brian, is an exuberant poem which anticipates a great summation of creation, a final resolution in which through Christ, God will be all in all, and all manner of things shall be well, and love will win. And then at the very end, you invite us to join in with you in a bit of laughter. Well, Brian, I'm certainly willing to join in with you in that laughter and that wonderfully inclusive vision with you. But as you know well, not all Christians share this magnificent vision and so they are not able to laugh along with us. A good example of some of those who are not laughing along with us is found in Lee Strobel's latest book, The Case for Heaven, where Lee Strobel and Paul Copan label the kind of vision you are talking about as a dangerous and deviant departure from traditional Christianity. And so I wanted to hear from you how you will respond to some of the main concerns that Strobel and Copan raise in their book. But before we get into that, can you just tell us in general how you have handled those who have not been able to laugh along with you about your inclusive vision of the Christian faith? Well, I just don't pay that much attention, you know. (laughs) I just, I I don't, I try not to obsess about critics. I mean, you're going to have them. And, you know, it's one thing to have an honest conversation. I'm willing to do that. But if someone is just simply wanting to attack a position that has probably been misrepresented of what you actually believe, I, I just don't spend a lot of time with that kind of engagement. I try not to let it bother me, and for the most part, it doesn't. <laughs> so I don't worry that much about it. All right. Well, let's just go some of the critiques that, that we find in, in Chapter 8 of Lee Strobel's latest book, A Case for Heaven. And I think 
I want our attitude to be here that we're not angry with Lee Strobel, but we're using his concerns as an opportunity to have a discussion. And some of the concerns that he raises are concerns that a lot of people may have when they're initially trying Mm -hmm. to wrap their head around what we're talking about here. So the first critique that we find is that Christian universalism goes against the church's traditional position of eternal conscious torment established by such notable figures as Tertullian, Lactantius, Basil of Caesarea, Jerome, Cyril of Jerusalem, Chrysostom, Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, Edwards, Whitfield, and Wesley. As Lee Strobel summarizes, universalism falls outside the pale of the mainstream Christian tradition, although there are pockets of it in church history. Well, there's a lot there to unpack. Um, I, I virtually never, I, in fact, I can just say I never, I never self-describe my position as universalist. I don't do that for this reason. Too many people, the vast majority of people, bring all kinds of assumptions to bear when they hear the U word. <laughs> <laughs> and so I don't use that word. I just don't. I simply don't use that because people think they know what I would mean by that, and it's not what I mean by that. I'll use it here for a moment, and then I'll go to what I actually do believe. I would describe universalism, first of all, it's not a heresy. It, it, it doesn't impinge upon Christology. It has biblical warrant. I would describe it as a minority position that has always been held by some throughout church history and some of the most important church fathers, especially I'm thinking of Gregory of Nyssa. And you just can't throw Gregory of Nyssa under the heretic bus. That's just not going to work. And so... I'm not afraid of the word itself. I just don't use it to describe my own position because um, there's too many assumptions that come along with that. What I would say is I have a robust hope in apokatastasis. Yeah, I use that Greek word. I use that Greek Mm -hmm. word because I like it, and I use the Greek word because people in general don't know what it means. (laughs) And that allows me to start with a blank slate. It's a Greek word that means the restoration of all things. It occurs, it's quite common in the church fathers, but in that exact form, it only occurs one time in the New Testament. It's in Acts 3.21 in a sermon from the Apostle Peter where he talks about times of, uh, you know, different translations translated different ways. I think the NRSV translates it universal restoration. And so what I hold to is a hope that, I mean... I'll tell you who I... Well, we we, we got plenty of time here. We can slow down. I think it's a little bit difficult to say the New Testament has a clear position on how broad salvation is. I mean, if if you want infernalist passages, I know where to find them, and I know how they work. But I also know that if I'm just being as honest as I can be, I would say... It seems to me that it's pretty clear that the Apostle Paul had robust apocatastasis hopes. And it was based not in, this is what people think, well, people think, you know, that God just has to be made nice or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, I don't, I don't think what drives Paul to a position that if you wanted to use the U word, you could say, I think he has a universalist eschatology as far as salvation for the human race. But it's not rooted 
uh, in the, in a concept of the nature of God that God must act a certain way. Rather, it's rooted in his high Christology. And the Apostle Paul sees the accomplishment of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, in incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, as so overwhelmingly triumphant that in the end, as he says, God must be all in all. And that's, that's kind of the, the last word in Pauline eschatology. That's in 1 Corinthians 15, like what, verse 21 maybe, somewhere in that neighborhood, that God will be all. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Okay, 28. I missed it by seven verses. I just have that one really solid. And so, you know, and, and there's other passages like that. I mean, the complex argument that straddles over three chapters in Romans, the Romans 9, 10, and 11 chapters, which admittedly, Paul is making a very dense argument. Um, and there are rhetorical devices being used that I think are a little bit foreign to modern readers. But even if you can't follow the whole line of reasoning, you can see his conclusion because he makes it very clear. And he, he gives his conclusion, and then he just simply breaks into a doxology. But his conclusion is this, that God has shut up all in disobedience that he might be merciful to all. So I think what Lee Strobel's is doing, and I, I, I've not met him, I don't know him, I haven't read this book, so I don't know exactly, but... I I think um, you know I'm I, I I believe he's acting in good faith and there are this is the problem with the U word is that people think that it is a, that it is the equivalent of cheap grace that everyone is automatically just saved upon death or whatever with no accountability no real appeal to Christ no repentance no transformation. No judgment. And I mean, I don't believe that at all. I don't believe anything remotely like that. From I don't know anything really about this book, but from what I've heard from you, I would say it sounds to me like the book could would have been more aptly titled The Case for Hell. <laughs> well, I, I but, think yeah, I think what happened in the book is he wanted to make the case for heaven and and so he he looks at it from a number of different points of view. But then I guess he feels like writing from an evangelical background, he needs to say, well, if we're going to talk about heaven, we we at least need to think about yeah, hell as it's what's and interesting what it means. is that the position of apocatastasis is growing. It seems to me exponentially in popularity. That there was a period of time when it was completely verboten, but now uh, I mean I'm just seeing more and more scholarly, well reasoned theological works on this topic coming out all the time. You know, you had the phenomenon with Rob Bell, however long ago that was, 10 years ago, maybe more, I don't remember. Yeah, you know, he, comes out, he comes out with the book, Love Wins. It gets attacked before it's out. It was really the trailer promoting the book on Amazon, I think, yeah. is what set John Piper off and his famous, you know, Farewell, Rob Bell. Uh, and I would just be, I don't know Rob Bell either, so. <laughs> I don't think the—I mean, I read the book in one sitting. It's not a difficult book at all, and I wouldn't even really—I wouldn't call it a theological work. I would call it a musing—the the, the musings of a troubled evangelical mind on the topic of eternal conscious torment. 
That would be my subtitle for Love Wins. Mm-hmm. Because the, there, there aren't real conclusions arrived at in the book, and no. there aren't robust theological arguments made, necessarily. There's questions are raised. But that book got a lot of backlash. And it seemed, though, in some ways, though Rob Bell himself had to take all the backlash and pretty much, you know, be cast out as persona non grata from the evangelical world, um, it opened the door in enough minds for people to begin to consider. And then, of course, you have people like David Bentley Hart, who uh, his book, That All Shall Be Saved, which I have read uh, four times, three or four times, I think four times. I mean, and I don't read a lot of books four times. I just think it's magisterial. I think it's, I think, my goodness, what a compelling case. And uh, it's one thing for you just to want to dismiss Rob Bell with a farewell tweet. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can pull that off with David Bentley Hart. I mean, his scholarship is too strong. His powers of rhetoric <laughs> are too overwhelming. You're going to have to actually step into the arena and and do the hard work of actually engaging with this kind of thought. One of the things I find interesting, and uh, of course, Hart is extremely well-read in Patristics, he will make the case that that in the 4th century, 3rd, 4th century, uh, mainly in the 4th century, that, uh, I'll use the word universalism, because he uses that word, uh, was perhaps the dominant position, at least among uh, the church fathers. And so I don't think it's exotic. It's not as exotic as people think. It's not like this is just something that was cooked up uh, as a, you know, real far left progressive, you know, John, John Shelby Spong sort of theology. Mm-hmm. It's not that. I mean, when we're talking about Gregory of Nyssa, when we're talking about Maximus the Confessor, when we're talking about Origen, we're talking about, you know, really at the heart of a lot of what passes for small old orthodoxy. So uh, those are my thoughts, but I mean, to begin our conversation, but you will find me continually returning to the fact that I don't use the U word because people bring their own assumptions. Here's what they think. We may have talked about this last time, but I'm going to say it again. People hear that in, in the worst possible form. Many do anyway. So that someone like Hitler you know, shoots himself in the head in the bunker, and then immediately he's in his heavenly luxury villa with no accountability, no repentance, no judgment, and I don't believe anything remotely like that. And I don't know of any serious theologian who holds to the hope of universal salvation that believes anything like that either. But if that word the U word has been co-opted with that kind of idea, then I, I'll just reach for other language. And I'll just talk about, all right, how far-reaching is the possibility of the accomplished work of Christ as it pertained to the, the salvation of the world, because Jesus is called the Savior of the world. I, I, think, I think one of the most interesting things, I think one of the most interesting hurdles for particularly Protestant people to get over and then it, it's even more so if you go into the evangelical and fundamentalist subcategories of Protestantism, mm-hmm. is somewhere along the way, it got fixed in the evangelical fundamentalist Protestant mind that no work 
of grace, no saving work of grace can occur following one's last breath. Now, I don't know where you get that. I don't know where that came from, but I know it's just, I mean, it, possibly it comes out of revivalism, right? Maybe, you know, out of 18th, 19th century revivalism and into the 20th century and Billy Sunday and Billy Graham, you know, if you died tonight, do you know where you would spend eternity? And, and so phrasing it like that, the assumption is everything has to be dealt with before death. Now, death is a big deal. <laughs> In the mm-hmm. fact that this initiates judgment, you know, people point out Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed that each man die once after this, the judgment. Yes. But then I say, okay, then what? I mean, <laughs> then what? I mean, what is, mm-hmm. what is the point of judgment if it's not ultimately redemptive? And I think if you can get people at least to crack the door open and say, you know, there isn't any definite scriptural warrant for believing that the saving work of God in Christ must cease with our last heartbeat, then you go, okay, well, maybe the hope for salvation goes beyond the grave. I mean, after all, Jesus says, I have the keys of death and Hades. Well, what does he do with those keys? You know, and of course, then you also have the dominant picture in the patristic period in their hymns, sermons, and theology of the the harrowing of hell is the is the kind of the archaic term the distressing of hell that Jesus descends to the realm of the dead not as a victim but as a conqueror i mean it's if you want to talk about atonement theory that isn't really our topic but uh, I would say the early church didn't really have atonement theories that probably they, they wouldn't have thought in those terms but the way they talked about atonement was that they use this kind of language. This comes from John Chrysostom, and some others use this, that, that they're, well, it's, it's Christus victor. But, you know, I know that I means, you know, Christ's victory, Christ the, the victor, the triumphant one. But the way it was actually presented is a little bit strange to modern people. It was a trick played upon the devil. And so if you talk about ransom theory in, in uh, atonement theories, What's, what really throws modern people off is they imagine the ransom being paid to God, and it's not. The ransom is paid to the devil or death. It works like this. They use The, the fathers use this language, that the, more, the flesh of Jesus, that is his humanity, that is his mortality, was the bait on the hook of his divinity. And so if you, th- if you want to personify death, death is, is swallowing every human from Adam on, all of us. You know, we're all, I mean, to be human is to be mortal, to be mortal is to be subject to death. And so death just swallows everyone, and Jesus' death assumes is no different because Jesus is mortal. Jesus is a human. Jesus is fully human. This is our good you know, Christology. Mm-hmm. But Jesus is also fully God. And so, though death could swallow the humanity of Christ, death could not digest divinity. And death was destroyed from the inside out. Once the immortal one entered into death, once, once God himself entered into death, death was doomed. And so, in the, in the hymns of the early church, especially the Holy Saturday hymns, there's all this language about Christ emptying out the realm of the dead, hell, Hades, whatever language you want to use, that Christ goes down into hell and then liberates all the captives. I mean, 
It isn't always all the captives, but most of the time that's the language they use. Again, this is all just making the point that the idea that ultimately Christ could redeem all of humanity, or to say it more simply, that Christ could be in fact the Savior of the world, is not something new. It isn't something particularly progressive in any way. It has its roots in a long, conservative, historic orthodoxy. That was a good rant, wasn't it? That was a good rant. (laughs) Well, I I appreciate that. A second concern that Strobel raises is one I've heard, and you may have heard this as well. He says, the main advocate of Christian universalism was Origen, and he was condemned as a heretic by the church at the Fifth Ecumenical Council in 553 A.D. I've got a book upstairs I should have brought down. I don't want to leave the podcast and wander upstairs and find this book. Uh, there, you know what? I'm going to do it anyway. Hold on. Okay. Because I'm going to recommend this. Just just chat among yourselves. I'll be back in just a moment. All right. Sorry about that. I'm back. Yes. <laughs> you, yes you'll probably I, edit that. It was like I was gone for one second. Yeah. I think I know the book that you're talking about, A Larger Hope. A Larger Hope. Universal Salvation from Christian Beginnings to Julian of Norwich. I'm not exactly how to say her name. Alaria th- I've heard it. Ramelli? Alaria Alor- Ramelli. Ramelli. That's pretty close. I was in the neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she's a scholar of great repute. You know, and Al Kimmel has a, has a new book out, Destined for Joy, and he's got his article on the Fifth Ecumenical Council in that book. Right. It's and, also and, an eclectic and orthodoxy. There are aspects of origin speculation about pre-existent souls that were condemned, but the idea that Apocatastasis universal salvation was condemned by the Fifth Ecumenical Council, it's just not true. It's just false. And, and origin is so, I mean, it's like his name. He is the origin of so much. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's the well. He's our, really our first creative theologian. In one sense, he's the the first real theologian in the church. I know that's overstated, and people will misunderstand that. But what we have prior to Origen is mostly scriptural commentary. But with Origen, you actually begin to get speculative theology, creative theology, actually forming something that can be bigger and broader and can actually become Christianity. Christianity. Uh, you, You can't just dismiss origin with with a wave of the hand. Uh, And besides that, everything, I mean, I'm sure that people like Gregory of Nyssa and Maximus the Confessor are informed by origin. I mean, I know they are. But what are you going to do, dismiss them too? So I think think Lee Strobel's probably just wanted to be able to dismiss this as quickly as possible and act like there's just absolutely no historical precedent for believing in universal salvation. That's just not, that's just not true. So. Yeah. The, uh, the, I think it's the 11th canon of the fifth ecumenical council. You find Origen's name at the end of a list of heretics, but Mm -hmm. there's nothing in the official proceedings of the council that let us know what he was condemned for because the council was addressing that good Christology question about is Christ fully human and fully divine? That was the big schism that was going on. So they had to sort of reaffirm Chalcedon at the fifth ecumenical council. And so there are some imperial anathemas that kind of get historically attached to the memory of that council, but 
but they were not a part of the official proceedings of the council. Yeah, so I, I haven't read this book yet. I mean, I just I've just got it. And I just got started. I'm, <laughs> oh, I'm, you'll, I'm 19 pages in. So. Oh, you will. You will love it. You will love it. OK, let's continue on. OK, third. And this is a quote from Paul Copan. I believe universalism is an aberrant and dangerous doctrine. You certainly get no hint of it in the Old Testament, where Psalm 1-6 reads, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Okay. Um, if you want to bring up the Old Testament in a book called, what, what's the name of the book? The heaven? Case for Heaven. Case for Heaven. Yeah, Case for Christ, Case for Heaven. I get it. Um, he's the case for guy. Yeah. Well, what you don't get in the Old Testament is any case for heaven either. <laughs> I mean, that, that's that's just sort of a, I mean, what you don't get in the Old Testament is any real picture of an afterlife. That was that was part of the Jewish uniqueness that the Gentile religions, their, you know, the Gentile religions of the ancient Near East, the pagan world, were intensely afterlife focused. I mean, that's what those pyramids are all about. And this is really kind of the stock and trade of religions, is afterlife issues. Uh, the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, as it develops into Judaism in the Old Testament, it, it, it offers virtually no speculation whatsoever on the afterlife. I mean, if anything, you would say the Old Testament pretty much just thought when you're dead, you're dead, or there's shield, or might be some kind of murky, you know, dreamlike, phantom existence, but uh, there's if, if there's not a hell, or if there's not a heaven, there's not a hell, there's just sort of nothing. You do get in the in the last book, because I do hold that, the, the, that Daniel's from the second century B.C., you, that's where you do get resurrection themes. I mean, it's mentioned twice in Daniel, and of course that then becomes cornerstone for Christian theology. You're not going to be able to use the Old Testament successfully to make an infernalist argument for hell, that's for sure. That's what I'll say to that. Well, one of the things that I noticed is once I allowed myself to believe that God might have a final apocatastasis in mind, and I went back through and looked in the Old Testament, I found it, I found verses that had some resonance for me that they hadn't had before. Like, you know, you're reading through the Psalms and you come to Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Or you're reading along and you get into Lamentations and you find, well, the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. You know, so you, you're going along and you're reading all of that and, and other passages that envision, you know, that have a big kind of vision of, of a kind of re restoration of creation. And, and, and once you, if you have the idea of a possible apocatastasis in mind, when you're reading through the, at least my experiences, rereading the Old Testament again, some of these passages nearly, you know, jumped off the page right. at me. Yeah, I mean, there's Psalm 130, whatever it is, maybe like 135, where 27 or 28, I think it's 28 times, or 28 verses in each yeah. verses, His mercy endures forever. forever. His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. <laughs> so, so that's why I say I just, I can't, I just can't see... God, as revealed in Christ, being this petty deity that would refuse to give mercy to a repentant sinner 
simply based upon some sort of, uh, you know, time expiration. That, that, that God's mercy has now reached the expiration date, and too bad, too bad. No, you know, if you'd prayed that five minutes, nope, sorry, it's too late. Should have thought about that earlier. I just, and, and maybe I'll just say this here. If you are driven by a particular commitment to infernalism or universalism, you'll find your verses. I mean, I don't, I don't think you're going to settle this issue purely on a textual basis. Yeah, someone can bring their infernalist verses, and I can find the universalist verses. They're there. I, and then it's, you know, my verses versus your verses. You know, it's... A, we're just throwing Bible verses at each other. I think you have to begin to do some philosophical theology, and you have to work with the assumption that God is only perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. And then I think you have to begin to raise some questions. I mean, just, just the problems of, the theological problems of a hell of eternal, which is not a long time, Eternal is eternal, which is really beyond the capacity of a human being to comprehend. Yeah, you could, never even, we, you, you could never even begin to serve that sentence right. because no matter how long you were doing it, you would still be right at the very After beginning. After a billion trillion years, you have taken not one second off of your sentence of <laughs> right. being tortured. And so you raise questions like, well, how in the world could an infinite punishment be a just punishment for a finite crime, no matter how severe the fine, the finite crime. I mean, a finite being can only sin finitely, <laughs> not 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 infinitely, and so so you begin to have these kind of problems. Plus, when you look at um, the greatest proponents, I mean, the, the more committed you are to eternal conscious torment. I just want to slow that down. Eternal, conscious, torment, okay? Mm -hmm. The more committed you are to that, there tends to be, uh, all, you, you also have a more restricted view of who is included in salvation, right? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I've noticed that. The more committed you are to eternal, conscious torment, the fewer people you believe are actually saved. Because that it has to be, Christians from your tribe. <laughs> you got to believe, you know, are, do Catholics, no, Catholics don't count. The Orthodox count, oh, please. No, it's got to be, you know, some version of my tribe. And so if you're thinking about, oh, and it has to be since Christ, you know, it's, and, and so those that never heard, well, too bad, because God doesn't owe salvation to anybody. That's, you know, the argument. So you end up, with a very populous hell of eternal conscious torment and a pretty small minority of people saved. I don't know how that equals Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. <laughs> it looks to me like Jesus Christ, you know, found a few lucky elect souls to sort of... How do I say it in that poem? Okay. 
I believe in the restoration of all things. Jesus is the Savior of the world. It's more than the rescue of a few lucky elect souls whisked off to heaven at the last second as a consolation prize for a God whose plan didn't quite work out. <laughs> I mean, let's just you know play around with numbers. If only 10% of humanity is saved, how, how in the world is Jesus the Savior of the world? How in the world does that is that God winning? I mean... <laughs> Mm-hmm. So it sounds to me like no God God you know if 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 you're if you win ten percent of your games you didn't have a winning season you had a losing season and then I could press it even more aggressively by suggesting if ninety percent of God's creatures end up in eternal conscious torment. God would have been an infinitely more moral being if in the beginning God had done nothing. I'm saying all of that to say this, that just being able to go find a verse somewhere. Yeah, but, you know, it talks about uh, they they shall go to everlasting fire in, in Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. Until, until you learn that, oh no, uh, David Bentley Hart, and others will tell you no. They go to the fire of the age, to the, to, the, to the chastening of the fire of the age. You know, fire of the, the difference between eternal fire and fire of the age. So, you know, Pretty is hell difference. purgatory? I mean, is it purgatory? You know, then they get into, I try not to use the word purgatory because of all of the fanciful you know, imaginings that belong to the medieval church and with the indulgences and giving people vacation time from purgatory. All of that is, is uh, I mean, this is what leads to the Protestant Reformation, and rightfully so. But the idea that there is a purging process post-mortem, well, that has definite scriptural warrant. I mean, that's 1 Corinthians 3, that, that you know, we're all going to pass through the fire. And whether it's you know gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble, that makes the difference. Uh, you know, some come through relatively unscathed, some lose everything, but in the end are saved. So I know I'm all over the road here. You, you probably better take charge, David, and lock us into some specific <laughs> topics because I'll just all right. Uh, okay, ramble. let me just let me just continue on. Uh, another concern is Strobel admits that there is an emotional tug to the idea of all being saved, and Paul Copan responds, yes, who doesn't want everyone to be saved? Even God desires it, he declared, his eyes widening. As 1 Timothy 2, 4 and 2 Peter 3, 9 say, he wants all to come to a knowledge of the truth, but Christ is the potential Savior of all, not the actual Savior of all. In other words, salvation is universal in intent, that is, God's desired will, but it's not achieved in fact, that is, God's permissive will. While salvation is potentially offered to all, not all freely accept it. The scriptures, he continued, repeatedly indicate that there will always be creatures who fully and finally say no to God. Finite moral agents, whether angelic or human, have the capacity to choose contrary to God's moral order. Only God is necessarily good. He cannot do what is wrong. The same isn't true for contingent moral creatures like us who can choose lesser finite goods over the ultimate good. They can turn a good thing into a God substitute and fall prey to idolatry. Well, there's some lofty claims being made, (laughs) Uh, to to which at at numerous points I would want to break into that and say, how do you know this? 
you say you know this. I mean, I might just begin with asking the question, does God get what God desires? And, and before you say no, immediately, I'm saying, well, let's think this through. God does not get ultimately what God desires. Are you sure about that? I think that creates some problems. I, 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 I think the problem still keeps coming up is someone that you would regard as not a believer or even wicked at the moment of death, you're convinced that nothing else can happen after that. I, I don't think God's going to save anyone contrary to their will, whatever that would mean. I don't want to be saved, so don't save me. Well, I don't, okay. But, you know, in, in that all shall be saved by David Bentley Hart, he really does a good job in dismantling the free will argument. He says, well, how free would be a will that would choose hell eternally? I mean, that is a will that's in bondage to something. That is a will that has been deceived. That is a will that in one way or another is benighted by a profound ignorance that actually brought into the light of truth who wouldn't choose their own well-being. And so I just think it's, it's, it's very... I think maybe what's driving a lot of this is, and I get this, this is a pastoral concern. I am a pastor. And it's why I don't traffic in terms of cheap universalism. Um, I think people are afraid, well, if, if everybody's going to be saved, then you know, we'll just live however we want and everything will be all right. To it, just say, no, that isn't how any of this works. Nobody gets away with anything. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And we have to give an account for the deeds done in the body. And I, I, I promise you, no sin will go unregretted. But also, as we turn away from sin and ask the mercy of God, God never refuses mercy to those that repent. I think the fundamental disagreement I'm going to have with this book, The Case for Heaven, which this, part, this portion of the book probably should be The Case for Hell, is that the authors seem absolutely committed to the idea that no saving work can occur beyond the grave. And I just, I don't, why do you believe that? Why would you want to believe? And when people say it's it's emotional argument that we would want, I would say, well, I mean, it may touch my emotions, but it's not an argument rooted in emotion. It's a theological argument. Well, rooted I found in, rooted in the fact that Jesus is the supreme revelation of who God is. Jesus well, alone I, is Jesus alone is perfect theology. And so you may be able to say, I can imagine Christ refusing mercy to a humble, repentant sinner, but I'm going to say, I can't. I don't see anything in Scripture or anything in my own experience, anything, you know, in the best of Christian theology over 2,000 years that would suggest that Jesus ever refuses mercy to a humble, repentant sinner. Well, and so what, what I, so I guess the argument is, can a obstinate, arrogant sinner become humble and repentant post-mortem. And some are going to say, nope, they're locked into what they are forever. I'm going to say, I, I don't believe that. I don't have any reason to believe that. Why would I believe that? Uh, in this, he says, um, you know, yes, who doesn't want everyone to be saved? Well, I found out when I started talking about this with people, oh. 
a whole lot of people don't want everyone to be saved. And, and, they I, can, I, and I find that shocking. I, I find that shocking. And I, I, that, that is troubling to me. I, I phrased the question like this. If God could save everyone in Christ, how would you feel about it? The vast majority of people are saying, oh, yes, praise the Lord. I, hope, I would just hope that could somehow be true. But there are a few that will say they would be angry because they lived their holy, righteous life as they imagine it for no purpose. <laughs> I, I think that that is a deeply troubled soul. The person that can think that way. I would even go so far as to say, that person probably is going to have some hell to pay. Uh, that is actually the kind of soul that is going to end up in trouble. Because, I mean, I'm preaching out of the lectionary this Sunday, and this coming Sunday is the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the person that would be upset if if God saves everyone is too much like the Pharisee. This is, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. I'm not like these other sinners. And, yeah, of course, we know how the parable ends. It's the tax collector who can't pray anything other than, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the one that is justified, not the self-righteous Pharisee who's banking everything on they have believed and lived just right. All right, let's continue on. Another concern. Uh, Strobel recognizes that in Colossians 1.16, Christ is said to have been the agent through whom all things were created, and that then in Colossians 1.20, he is called the agent through whom all things are to be reconciled. Paul Copan responds, you have to keep reading to get the full picture. Paul goes on to say in verse 23, now he has reconciled you if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. So there's a condition there. We see something similar in Romans 5, just as all in Adam fall, so all in Christ, the second Adam, are reconciled to God. But these aren't identical groups. To be in Adam, the old fallen humanity, is to face condemnation. To be part of the new humanity in Christ through faith is to experience redemption. Strobel then concludes, you can't disconnect these texts from what Paul says elsewhere, that some will end up shut out from the presence of the Lord, 2 Thessalonians 1.9 or that those who preach a false gospel are under God's curse, Galatians 1, 8 through 9. I don't have any problem with any of that unless you make it an ultimate finality. So uh, I believe in the judgment of God. I believe in all of that. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe... I'm, I'm universal in my scope of hope, but I am very particular in how this salvation comes. It comes by Jesus Christ. There is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. I hold to that, that all that is saved is saved by Christ. But if all things are created by Christ and for Christ, that doesn't leave any room for anything else. That ultimately, through the work of Christ, God becomes all in all. Now, in the, in the process of that all coming to pass, all kinds of things happen as far as judgment and wrath, if you want to talk about that. And none of the, no one, there's nothing cheap about any of this. I, I think we're just stuck on this point is I'll say, okay, yes, at some point, the wicked are judged and they are brought up before God in judgment. 
But then what? Is God's, is God's punishment purely punitive? Is not redemptive, not corrective, but just punishment for the sake of punishment? Well, at what point does it become absurd? Well, certainly it becomes absurd by the time it's eternal. You're going mm-hmm. to eternally, consciously punish someone for, for eternity? To what point? Just to demonstrate your cruelty? Just to demonstrate your sovereignty? Your cruel sovereignty? I just, I think where I'm going to end up on most all of these discussions is I'll concede that there is judgment and we can, we can have the wrath passages and we can have punishment, we can have all that, but eternal? At some point? Doesn't the, doesn't the whole purpose result in people repenting? And saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. So I guess, the, I mean, I'm using it fairly simply because I can use all the verses too. I mean, I know the verses. We can, we, we can get down to the nitty gritty of, you know, biblical warfare, <laughs> text <laughs> by text, you know, and, and it'll end up as a stalemate because I know how that, those things always end that way. But I'm just saying, do you believe that there comes a point when a human being created in the image of God has become humble and repentant and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and that God says, no. If someone is at that, arrives at that position, I can say, well, probably we just have such a fundamental different perspective on the nature of God that at this point it's going to be difficult for us to agree. If someone says, well, they can't repent, they have so warped, distorted their own soul that they're incapable of repentance. I'm a little more sympathetic to someone making that argument. But then I would say, are you sure? I've always said that I think maybe God's favorite Rolling Stone song is Time is on My Side. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't believe in salvation apart from repentance. But, you know, C.S. Lewis talking about George MacDonald he said, yeah, McDonald definitely believed that all men would be saved because he believed that in the end all men would repent. And, and Lewis, who was a little bit more coy on what he believed about universalism, it's hard to pin him down, he acknowledges, though, that his mentor, his teacher, his master, George McDonald, clearly believed that all would be saved, but he said all will be saved because all will repent. All haven't repented yet, but he, you know, Time is on my side, saith the Lord. <laughs> and uh, given enough time, I think that there is at least the hope that all come to repentance. Again, we just keep coming back to this point, David, that somewhere along the line, and I think it is rooted in 18th, 19th century revivalism, that, that all saving work must occur before death that there is no possibility of any salvific work post-mortem. And I just, I reject that, I, that argument as simply an arbitrary argument that somebody made up. I just don't see any warrant for it. Well, one of the things I noticed here, and I, and I noticed this when I was growing up, I didn't grow up going to church, grew up in the uh, uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area. And so I'm, I get invited to church and it, Nobody ever maybe said this all at once, but it seemed like there was a little bit of a mixed message. I was told on the one hand, all you have to do to be saved is to, you know, just believe, 
just just believe. And then then they would say, well, and you got to repent too. Okay, so okay, so believe and repent is is there is there anything else? Well, you got to walk the narrow path. I mean, you got to you got to you got to walk the narrow path. Uh, and of course, uh you have to continue in your faith established and firm and not ever moving from the hope held out in the gospel. And you can't be lukewarm um, because if Jesus ever comes back and you're lukewarm, then you're not going to, you know, by the time it, it seemed like um, salvation, all you have to do is believe and then lead an exactly perfect Christian life for the rest of your life, not miss church, do all the right things. And then maybe, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll make it. But it's, it seemed the way they put it, it, it seemed nearly, nearly impossible to make it. Even if you did accept Jesus, that was just the beginning step and kind of a grueling test, which most would fail. Well, yeah. And even worse is the idea that this whole life is really nothing more than an elaborate staging for a kind of SAT eternal placement test that that are in that our eternal destiny to use the language of the revivalist you know heaven or hell eternal conscious torment versus eternal bliss is really based upon your ability to answer a few theological questions correctly so that you know all hindus all muslims are damned because they're going to get the wrong answer on the theology test or uh, apparently all people before Christ. Maybe maybe some of them come up with a way to figure out some of the Jews get saved. But, you know, well, these are theologies. These are speculations. These are uh, afterlife-oriented speculations that turn God into a rather monstrous being. And I can tell you the wider world is not as unaware or daft, as a lot of people maybe think they are. And they hear about a God who is willing to damn to eternal conscious torment the vast majority of the human population, both in history and at the present moment, because they didn't believe the right things. And it's very difficult not to objectively see that caricature of God as something truly monstrous. It's like, well, yeah, and so I see why that kind of Christianity creates atheists out of good conscience. Um, most atheists in the Western world that I meet, I would describe as protest atheists. Someone says, I don't believe in God. I said, okay, tell me about the God you don't believe in, which is an interesting question, but they can answer it. And they describe this capricious, petty God who damns most of the human race to eternal conscious torment. And they'll tell you, I, I don't believe in a God like that. Said, and good for you. I mean, you are, you are demonstrating a moral conscience. I said, I don't believe in that God either, but I do believe in God. But I don't believe in that God. And one of the more interesting things that David Bentley Hart, I know I keep coming back to that, but I just thought that was such a fine book that all shall be saved. He raises the question, and I've thought about this. 
He says, I really don't think most that claim to believe in eternal conscious torment actually do. Uh, I, I'm not sure if I agree with that or not, because I've been around these people, but I, I think they must just somehow push it out of their mind. Uh, Hard will just say, I'm not sure how they could maintain their sanity. I'm not sure how they could ever just sit back at home, eat popcorn, and watch a movie <laughs> with their family and have a, a nice relaxing evening if they thought that the vast majority of people they knew were right on the precipice of being eternally tortured. I know this is the kind of language used in revivalism, but even then, I, it's, it's almost like a Halloween game rather than something we actually deeply believe. Now, I know that, I mean, I, you know, look, I've given hundreds and thousands of, of uh, heaven and hell altar calls in my day. I know how to do that, and I always did it in good faith. And yet, I'll tell you what lurked in the back of my mind, is that if I was really put to it, and, and, and if I really thought, okay, is God really going to torture the vast majority of people for eternity? And I would eventually, at that time, maybe not having the resources to find my way out of the predicament, would find myself thinking, I just don't think that's how this deal goes down. Because Ultimately, I still had the good sense to believe that Jesus is the true revelation of who God is. And that's just so far out of the character of anything we see in Christ. That, 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 that there, there must have been some mistake in the formulation of theology along the way. Now, if somebody hears me say all this, they'll, they'll say, okay, I get it. BZ doesn't believe in hell. BZ believes in hell. I mean... To have lived a selfish life, possibly a wicked life, because there are people that live wicked lives. I don't think it's most people, but, you know, some do. And then suddenly, to have nothing to distract you, upon death, let's say, you, you don't have any distractions. You are just having to come face to face with who you are, what you've been, what you've made of yourself. I, I think the proper word for that would be hell. I just don't think it's the end of the story. I think the, the mercy of God endures forever, and you're going to have to do some work, and there may be all kinds of aid that comes to you that, that, that a prospective soul may reject for a very long time, but I don't think they reject it eternally. I mean, that's, that's to me, that's the bottom line, is that the door remains open. That is the possibility for genuine humility, leading to repentance, leading to the mercy of God, and the reclamation of the lost soul. So I, I just think it's not over at death. That may be really where the work actually begins. And so I, that's where I think um, a book, uh, you know, the fantasy novel of C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce. If people haven't read that, but they should read this book. I read it for the first time, you know, probably as a teenager. And that book has always been something of a saving grace. I'm just back from... Uh, three weeks in England, and part of what Perry and I did while we were there was spend a few days in Oxford, and probably the, my favorite thing was to visit the kilns. That's the, the home where C.S. Lewis lived for over 30 years, and um, I, I did look at his writing desk and think, okay, this is where the great divorce was written. It's a fantasy novel. I know you know what it is, David. Yeah. About um, um, hell is kind of this gray town where it's always dreary, kind of always drizzling, kind of always kind of cold, 
it's not flames, it's not torture, but it's it's not the kind of place you'd want to live. And people are just always kind of right on the verge of being disgusted with one another. It's kind of like life on Twitter or something. <laughs> and they just keep moving further and further and further away from one another. But these people are given a, an opportunity to uh, take a bus ride <laughs> to mm-hmm. heaven. And they don't necessarily understand that they're in hell or that where they're going is heaven. That's not completely clear to them. But they they are given an opportunity to go to heaven, and if they want to stay, they can stay. And uh, not all choose to stay, but some do in the way the novel plays out. Um, I would just say that that the novel never ends, that that story never ends, that the mercy of God continues to call. Her gates will never be shut, you know. I mean, we think, okay, it, it, it ends, the, the Bible ends with, with, you know, the redeemed in the new Jerusalem and the damned in the lake of fire. Well, sort of, that's how the story ends, except the spirit and the bride say, come. Are you thirsty? Come. They're inside the city, but the gates are never shut. The gates are not to keep anybody out. The gates are just to help direct your entrance into it. But you do have to, you do have to repent. You do have to wash your, your robe. In the blood of the Lamb, you, you do have to repent, but you can come. And the Spirit and the Bride continually say, are you thirsty? Well, I'm in a lake of fire. Are you thirsty? Then come. And so that's, ultimately, David, that's just where I land, that I'm simply making the case that when the Bible says things like, his mercy endures forever, I believe that's true. When it says that in the end, God shall be all in all, and how long it takes to get to that end, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I mean, neither is anyone else, but I take that quite seriously. When it says that Jesus is the Savior of the world, I kind of take that seriously. When we're told that God ultimately shuts up all in disobedience, that God might be merciful to all, all right? You say that the mercy has to be received. I agree with that. That we can at any moment reject the mercy of God. I believe that. At any given moment, we have the capacity to reject the law, the love of God, and stay within our own self-imposed hell. I agree with all of that. But who has time on their side? I think it's God who has time on his side. And that my hope is that in the end, all of God's lost children will finally find their way home. And when they come home, the Father will be waiting for them and will throw a party. And, you know, it's the, it's the parable of the prodigal son. Um, I, I can't imagine some sort of addendum to the parable of the prodigal son that says, well... Uh, actually, the son stayed away too long, and the father slammed the door in his face. <laughs> I don't believe that. Uh, how, how long a, a soul in self-imposed exile might choose to stay in the pen, pen, pig pen, I don't know. But I am convinced that when the soul comes to itself and says, what am I doing here? I will confess my sins. I'll try to come home to the father that he will find the Father waiting for him, running to him, embracing him, and welcoming home. I don't think that character, that nature of God, ends with our death. I think that is how God is yesterday, today, and forever, who was and is and is to come. And so that's ultimately why I have the apocatastasis hope in my life, is I believe that God has time on his side. All right, the sixth uh, concern that I took from 
the chapter is that Strobel recognized that the Bible sometimes uses the word all to describe those who are ultimately redeemed, as in 1 Timothy 2.6, which says Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all people. And then uh, in the chapter, Copan responds, we need to examine that word all closely. For example, when the Gospel of Mark says that all the people of Jerusalem flocked to be baptized by John, he doesn't mean every single individual was doing that. It simply meant a lot of people. In this case, Jesus did pay for all the sins of the world and made grace available to all sinners, but we have to accept that payment on our behalf if we're going to benefit from it. Not everyone will do that. Well, again, you say not everyone will do that. How do you know? Do you know that? I don't know that. I don't know that. And I think I think also there's we can we can make a distinction between the rhetorical device all of Jerusalem that we would find in the gospels in a narrative form versus Paul using highly technical language and and doing precision theology not rhetorical narrative and when 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 Paul talks about God being all in all I don't think God he means God being a lot and a lot Mm-hmm. I think he means God being all in all. And yeah, you can or, say maybe Paul's wrong, but I think I think he clearly believes that there comes a time. The the ultimate eschatological accomplishment, vision, telos, is that in the end God will be all in all. And that's not rhetoric for God will be a lot in a lot. I, I, I mean, it seemed quite a stretch to say that the logical mind of Paul actually meant that when he didn't mean that. And then, of course, there's the point that, again, if you're, I understand, I understand how to do proof texting for eternal conscious torment. I don't believe it's persuasive any longer, but I know how you do that. But i tell you what you don't do. You don't get to use much of Paul at all. That just, that just is not in the corpus of Pauline theology. Paul doesn't talk about an eternal conscious torment of hell. And you know, if he actually believed in that and he didn't mention it, that seems odd. <laughs> I think he didn't mention it because he didn't believe it. Well, in that second Thessalonians package passage that will 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 suffer like an eternally an eternal destruction mm-hmm. uh, out of God's presence. That, that's how it often gets translated into English. Yeah, the destruction of the age. I mean. Eon is not eternal. It's the age. It's it's will suffer the destruction of the age. I, I'm I'm not going to be roped into a or, or painted into a corner where I say there is no punishment, there is no judgment, there is no wrath, understanding wrath for what it is and what it isn't. It's 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 uh, consequential. It's a result of our own trajectory against the love of God. It's ultimately self-imposed. It's not merely retributive, but it's still wrath. So, yes, I think all of that has to be faced and endured and responded to properly, but it's just not the end of the story. And there's a difference between eternal and age. There's a whole lot of difference, right? Mm-hmm. Between etern- the, the chastening of the age is not the same as eternal punishment. All right. Uh, Another concern. Strobel recognizes Jesus' mission was to seek and save the lost, and then he asks Copan, if some were actually left behind, did he fail? And Copan responds, no, he didn't consider it to be a failure just because there would be those 
who refused to take the narrow road, Jesus acknowledged that the eleven disciples the Father had given to him were preserved, even though the son of perdition, Judas, didn't really belong to Jesus, John 17, 12. At the cross, Jesus completed his mission. It is finished, John 19, 30. Isaiah 53 says, God would see the anguished death of his suffering servant as an atoning work that would justify many, uh, Isaiah 53, 11, even if not all would embrace the Messiah. Jesus identified with us in life and in death in order to save those who would choose the narrow path. Think of the parable of the prodigal son, he's, he added. Jesus leaves his hearers with this implicit challenge. Will we go inside to celebrate with the repentant sinner, or will we stay outside as the self-righteous older brother? God doesn't cancel the celebration just because there are some who don't want to go inside. Why should God defer to the naysayers over the willing participants? It's up to humans to say yes or no to God's initiating grace. Jesus' very teaching assumes that some will embrace him while others will not, a point that he makes in the parable of the four soils in Matthew 13. Well, let's just work there for a moment with the parable of the prodigal son, because that's where that argument ended up. Well, how does the parable of the prodigal son end? It ends with the father leaving the house party, going into, let's say it this way, Let's, let's, let's say it this way, going into the outer darkness where the elder brother is weeping and gnashing his teeth in anger and resentment toward his brother, and the father pleads with the elder brother to come into the house. And then how does it end? It doesn't end. It's unresolved. We don't know. Does the elder brother come in or does he not? We don't know. Why? Because it's still playing out. So... You can't say, all right, the elder brother responded wrongly, didn't initially come into the party, and so he is eternally condemned to being outside the father's house. I don't, we don't know that. What we do know is the father goes to those that are outside the father's house pleading with them to come. It's not that God is obstinate in resentment towards sinners, but that sinners will not turn toward the saving love of God in Christ. Well, so then the question becomes, which is more enduring? Which is truly eternal? Human stubbornness to remain within sin or God's gracious love? I, you can say it's a standoff, but if I have to vote, I'm going to say, in the end, I believe that God's love is more eternal than human stubbornness, human rebellion. And so I just, I just hold to the hope that in the end, all will turn and implore God for mercy, and that when this happens, God does not say no. God says, come home, my child. All right, just a, two more. Uh, ninth, Strobel recognizes in Philippians 2, 10 through 11, it says, every knee should bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. He then puts the question to Copan, doesn't this suggest that everyone will eventually come to faith? Copan responds, but will they bow willingly? Paul is citing Isaiah 45, 23 there, and he's aware that not all bowing before God springs from humble, repentant hearts. God's defeated foes will bow before him in shameful, reluctant acknowledgement that he is Lord, Zephaniah 2, 11. Just a few chapters later, Isaiah 49, 23 indicates that some will bow down before God and lick the dust at his feet. His enemies exhibit a feigned obedience. In Psalm 81.15, the psalmist says, those who hate the Lord would pretend to obey him, and their time of punishment would be forever. What a terrible picture of God. Why, why would you paint God as this capricious, 
petty, vindictive monarch who is more like, you know, the Zod character from the comic books than the father revealed in Jesus Christ. You will bow! And we bow and confess that too late! <laughs> it's <Yeah. laughs> a monstrous picture of God. And, and you're importing all kinds of your own assumptions into that Philippians 2 passage. It, Paul doesn't say anything about, you know, well, they're made doing it. On every knee shall bow of those in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And yeah, to the glory of Those, those are the terms of salvation. I think that's another implicit text where you see Paul holding out the hope for all in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Yeah, that, that confession is eximologestai, which is this joyful. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not, uh, I'm, you're twisting, I mean, tw- it's not you, saying you, uncle. You really have to make God monstrous to do that to Philippians chapter 2. That, that God is simply gaining petty satisfaction from forcing his enemies to bow. I mean, okay, okay, you can find some Old Testament passages about enemies licking the dust. Or just, just stay with the story and get to Jesus. Is that what we see? Do we see Jesus from the cross praying, Father, make my enemies lick the dust? No, he's praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that's really, there, there is some sort of profound ignorance involved in rejecting the love of God, an ignorance that I believe, given enough time, can be overcome and lead to humility and repentance and thus salvation. All right, we're, we're, we're winding down here. Strobel asked Copan for concluding reasons that Christian universalism uh, falls short biblically, and he replies by saying, both the Old and New Testaments reveal the opposite of universalism. We see the contrast between the righteous and unrighteous in Psalms, Proverbs, and Daniel 12.2, which talks about those awakening to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. In the New Testament, there's the judgment of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25, or the simple contrast in John 3.16 between those who have eternal life and those who perish. In Revelation 13.8, we find a limited, unexpanding number of names written in the Lamb's book of life, without which one cannot be in the presence of God. In Romans 9.3, Paul wished he could be condemned for his Israelite brothers and sisters so that they could be saved. Matthew 12, 31 to 32. Well, wait talks, a minute, but in the end they are saved. That's the whole point of the argument. <laughs> Matthew 12, 31, 32 talks about the unpardonable sin that won't be forgiven in the life to come. When asked whether only a few would be saved, Jesus replied in Luke 13, 24, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able to. And he says, he, none of these fit the universalist narrative. I, I, think, uh, I think I've offered my case. Uh, I believe there's judgment. I believe there's punishment. But I think that in the end, God's love is eternal. And so I hold out for the hope of God being all in all and Jesus being the Savior of the world. And look, we can pile texts on one side and texts on the other. I just think we have to ask questions like, what brings God ultimate glory, and what is the nature of God revealed in Christ? Is it at some point slamming the door and saying no, or is there, in the end, the restoration of all things? Well, one of the things that really helped to me was, you know, I'd heard that narrow, narrow door passage, and when I got to seminary and I was able to study that, we learned all about how 
Jesus was announcing this good news that the kingdom of God was now present. Right. And he was saying how few people would or would be choosing to enter that, that because they just didn't want to walk that path. But he said that's actually the path that leads to life. The other path, this wide path that they're all taking, that actually leads to destruction. But what, we, what he was talking about was the now present kingdom and all that was going on in that historical moment. But then that gets lifted out and it gets put in sort of an evangelical framework right. in, a, in an evangelistic. Yeah. 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 That happens all the time. I mean, when people say that Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else in the Bible, I say, yes, but you have to understand what he's talking about. Most of the time, most of those passages are references to the impending destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 that we turn into a postmortem hell. I mean, Jerusalem went to hell. It did go to hell. And literally, liter it was a literal hell where the fires weren't quenched and the maggots didn't die. And Jerusalem itself was pulled down in the, the Gehenna of the garbage dump uh, in what happened in AD 70. And if you just read Josephus' account of what life was like in Jerusalem under siege, I mean, that's hell. But it, it's, it's not the eternal conscious torment post-mortem hell. So, so I just, I just want to stress, whoever is seeing this, listen to this. I do not hold to a cheap universalism. I don't think anybody gets away with anything. Everything's faced. Everything's addressed. Repentance must be genuine and real. And the judgment of God is, is, is unescapable, unavoidable. Uh, I just think that it has an end other than mere petty retribution that ultimately it is for reclamation. It is for the healing of the human soul. Because a, a, a punishment that is eternal with no hope of reclamation is unworthy of the God revealed in Christ. And there's, there's nothing in Scripture or anywhere else that, would, that could persuade me that God is eternally petty, eternally vindictive, Internally, e eternally retributive to no purpose. That to me is, is, a, is a monstrous God that is so far removed from any concept that can be gained from Jesus Christ that I just find it absolutely unbelievable that people could somehow think that that is the nature of God revealed in Christ. Well, one of the things that I really appreciate about you is is people that a lot of people that are going through this time of, you know, when everything's on fire and they're looking for ways out or different ways to maybe reconstruct, reconstruct their faith. For those, those folks, it's hard to, it's hard to hear from somebody like me that was a mainline Protestant type. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't sound, I don't sound evangelical. Oh man, I can I can I can turn on the revivalist. You you have no idea how good I can do that. But you're obviously the real deal. I mean, you've you've walked that walk and and so what I can do is say, listen, you might not be able to hear me, but you might be able to hear Brian Zahn. And I was visiting with some folks the other day that were from evangelical backgrounds that were going through all of this, and they all mentioned your name. Um so maybe just to those people that have just kind of been, that have just kind of being, they're, they've kind of been shaken out of this belief system that they've had 
And now at this point, they're just confused. They don't know if they should still try to believe in God or how to interact with the Bible or, or what to do, or if they can, if they can find their way back to some kind of Christian faith that makes sense to them. What would you just say to those people in closing? I would say that for a time, maybe you'd need to narrow your Bible reading down to the Gospels possibly down to the Gospel of John for a season, until you can reorient yourself within Scripture. And maybe I'll just say what was said at the very beginning, which was the end of the poem, which is the end of my book, When Everything's on Fire. What would love believe about God? Believe that. What would love hope for humanity? Hope that. And laugh a little while. You know, and laugh with me now, if just for a little bit. I mean, trust your instinct toward love. That if God is love, and if God is perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ, how can we arrive at any other conclusion ultimately than all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well? Isn't that the best ending to the good news? I mean, if this is truly good news, I mean, if the gospel is really good news, why not at least crack the door open to the possibility that Julian of Norwich actually heard something from Jesus? All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, because I believe that's exactly the case. Well, another thing is I hear when they when they talk, there's a lot of emotion. You know, I... I I'm sort of, I, I, I got into the part of Christianity that doesn't have real high emotions, but these people have had, have experienced a lot of high emotion in their spiritual life. And when it kind of comes down or they feel a sense there's, there's some anger yeah. there. I mean, that emotion kind of can turn into, turns into anger. Mm-hmm. And what, mm-hmm. what happens there? Well, that's this is where you end up with protest atheism, where it's a it's a reaction toward um, the chick track God. If you know what I'm talking about, you probably do. Perry and I were traveling last Friday. We're flying back from Denver. Perry found one of those chick tracks in in the <laughs> women's room, and her service to humanity was to take it so it couldn't hurt somebody but you know all those tracks always in the same with some poor soul being flung into hell by the faceless white giant um i understand reacting against that picture of god just know it's not the only picture and throughout history sometimes as a minority um, but always present there are those who really did believe that God is love. The mystics are the ones that kind of can cut through a lot of the mess uh, when, when, when people are piling up all their Bible verses because, you know, that's what they want to do. They already have an objective, and they're going to get there by their Bible verses. The mystics, with their direct encounter with God by the Spirit, all seem to be saying the same thing. And it's always a message of love. It's a message that God, that really, really is true. That the Bible, you know, the Bible's peak moment is not a prohibition on shellfish. <laughs> the great towering 
pinnacle of scriptural revelation is that God is love. And so I'm going to keep returning to that. That I'll say it this way. If, if it turns out that God is just like Jesus, would that be good news? And I think almost everybody goes, yeah, that really would be good. Well, then dare to believe that. That, that in fact, Jesus is, of all things, the perfect revelation of who God is. And whereas Jesus is uncompromising with sin, Jesus is ever merciful to those who will humble themselves and ask for his mercy. That's why I pray repeatedly all throughout the day the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And when we pray that way, when we adopt that kind of posture, the the mercy of God is guaranteed. It will always be there. His mercy endures forever. And so if in our if in our stubbornness, if in our hardness of heart, if in our arrogance, if in our wrong thinking, we get stuck for a time in resisting the love of God, well, then we suffer the consequences until we're worn out by our own obstinance. And we find nothing else to say other than, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And when we pray that, the mercy of God in Christ is ever-present to us to save us. And I, that's, that's my gospel. That's what I believe. I can't. There's nothing in, in time or eternity that's going to change my mind about that, that when I ask for the mercy of God out of humility, it is granted. I believe I, I heard you on an interview the other day say that you have another book that's going to be uh, coming out. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, I'm pretty excited. It's, it's taken forever. I mean, my, the manuscript's done. We're into the editing process. It's going real smoothly because I give them good manuscripts <laughs> that don't need a lot of work. It's, it's a book on the cross. It's called The Wood Between the Worlds. It's 20 chapters. It will come out in February of 2024, not 23, 24, because it just does. February of 24. Yeah, not 23, <laughs> 24, even though the book is done. <laughs> but that's kind of the, that's the way it is in the publishing world. So, so I, I mean, I could talk about it, but there's no point in talking about it too right. much right now. <laughs> right. Well, uh, I'll be first in line whenever... Uh, Whenever it's time, I think to, I think to, you'll like it. It is my most apocatastasis book yet, to the extent I haven't got because I talk about it later in the book. Uh, there is a little bit of pushback from the from the publisher, not from the actual editors I'm working with. They love it, but with the the stance of the publishing company, I may have to. I think they want me not to be quite as forthcoming, and so I'll we'll we'll see what happens, but. We'll see. Well, that'll be interesting. I, you know, I think that what you're saying is that... It's, Even though it's I never use the U word. <laughs> well, there is undoubtedly a lot of interest in this way of putting things together. Right. And, and it's interesting to me that some of the people that are most enthusiastic about wanting to find this out are people who have evangelical backgrounds. And right. so some of because the Because publishing... they've been so traumatized by infernalism mm -hmm. that um, they're eager to find a way out of that mess. Well, what I, what I sometimes say to people, people will wonder, do people get up, maybe get upset with you when they, when they find out that you're teaching, you don't believe that 
God leaves anybody in hell forever. And what I say is, what I think I'm the person that is that is alerting these people as they're on their way out of the Christian faith. I'm I'm waving my hand, saying, "Hold on, you don't have to. You you right. you I don't think you have to leave. Right. I that's, don't think you have to leave." Exactly right, David. And and evangelicals, I know you might not trust any of any any publishing house that's not an evangelical one that you're used to. But so to these evangelical publishing houses, if if they can let someone like you speak and if they can give a solid scriptural kind of description mm-hmm. like this, you know, because what my experience is when these people are leaving evangel- evangelicalism, they don't stop at the local mainline Protestant church. Right. They just drive right past that one. Well, and they, and they, remain, they remain evangelical <laughs> in their in their ex-evangelicalism. The emphasis is still on evangelical because they have accepted the claim, implicit though it often is, that evangelicalism is the only legitimate form of Christianity and that all other forms are they're either not genuine Christianity or they're lesser. Well, no. If you're if you're going to be ex-evangelical, then don't accept the claim that evangelicalism represents the entire and only valid expression of Christianity. Look into Anglicanism. Look into other more traditional forms of the faith. Look into some of the mainline denominations. Don't just allow the evangelicalism that you're rebelling against to still set the terms of the debate that it's the only legitimate form of Christianity, because it's not. Thank you so much for your time, All right. Brian. Well, it's always, it's always a joy to chat with you, David. Yes, yes. I will continue to throw things your way, and uh, hopefully our paths will cross. All right. All right. Talk to you later. Blessings to you. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.